Chapter Three of *The Return of the Soul* by Robert S. Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Thursday night, December fifth. That lie awoke in me suspicion of the child I had married. I began to doubt her, yet never ceased to love her. She had all my heart and must have it till the end. But the calm of love was to be succeeded by love's tumult and agony. A strangeness was creeping over Margot. It was as if she took a thin veil in her hands and drew it over and all around her till the outlines I had known were slightly blurred. Her disposition, which had been so clear-cut, so sharply beautifully defined, standing out in its innocent glory for all men to see, seemed to withdraw itself, as if a dawning necessity for secrecy had arisen. A thin crust of reserve began to subtly overspread her every act and expression. She thought now, before she spoke. She thought before she looked. It seemed to me that she was becoming a slightly different person. The change I mean to imply is very difficult to describe. It was not abrupt enough to startle, but I could feel it, slight though it was. Have you seen the first flat film of waveless water, sent by the incoming tides of the sea, crawling silently up over the wrinkled brown sand, and filling the tiny ruts, till diminutive hills and valleys are all one smooth surface? So it was with Margot. A tide flowed over her character a waveless tide of reserve. The hills and valleys which I loved disappeared from my ken. Behind the old sweet smile, the old frank expression, my wife was shrinking down to hide herself, as one escaping from pursuit hides behind a barrier. When one human being knows another very intimately, and all the barricades that divide soul from soul have been broken down, it is difficult to set them up again without noise and dust, and the sound of thrust-in bolts and the tap of the hammer that drives in the nails. It is difficult, but not impossible. Barricades can be raised noiselessly, soundless bolts that keep out the soul be pushed home. The black gauze veil that blots out the scene drops, and when it is raised, if ever, the scene is changed. The real Margot was receding from me. I felt it with an impotence of despair that was benumbing. Yet I could not speak of it, for at first I could hardly tell if she knew of what was taking place. Indeed, at this moment, in thinking it over, I do not believe that for some time she had any definite cognizance of the fact that she was growing to love me less passionately than of old. In acts she was not changed. That was the strange part of the matter. Her kisses were warm, but I believed them premeditated. She clasped my hand in hers, but now there was more mechanism than magic in that act of tenderness. Impulse failed within her, and she had been all impulse. Did she know it? At that time I wondered. Believing that she did not know she was changing, 
I was at the greatest pains to guard my conduct, lest I should implant the suspicion that might hasten what I feared. I remained, desperately, the same as ever, and so, of course, was not the same, for a deed done defiantly bears little resemblance to a deed done naturally. I was always considering what I should say, how I should act, even how I should look. To live now was sedulous instead of easy. Effort took the place of simplicity. My wife and I were gazing furtively at each other through the eye-holes of masks. I knew it. Did she? At that time I never ceased to wonder. Of one thing I was certain, however, that Margot began to devise excuses for being left alone. When we first came home she could hardly endure me out of her sight. Now she grew to appreciate solitude. This was a terrible danger signal, and I could not fail to so regard it. Yet something within me held me back from speaking out. I made no comment on the change that deepened day by day, but I watched my wife furtively, with a concentration of attention that sometimes left me physically exhausted. I felt, too, at length, that I was growing morbid, that suspicion colored my mind and caused me, perhaps, to put a wrong interpretation on many of her actions, to exaggerate and misconstrue the most simple things she did. I began to believe her every look premeditated. Even if she kissed me, I thought she did it with a purpose. If she smiled up at me as of old, I fancied the smile to be only a concealment of its opposite. By degrees we became shy of each other. We were like uncongenial intimates, forced to occupy the same house, forced into a fearful knowledge of each other's personal habits, while we knew nothing of the thoughts that make up the true lives of individuals. And then another incident occurred, a pendant to the incident of Margot's strange denied visit to the room she affected to fear. It was one night, one deep dark night of the autumn, a season to affect even a cheerful mind and incline it towards melancholy. Margot and I were now often silent when we were together. That evening, towards nine, a dull, steady rain set in. I remember I heard it on the window panes as we sat in the drawing-room after dinner and remarked on it, saying to her that if it continued for two or three days she might chance to see the floods out and that fishermen would descend upon us by the score. I did not obtain much response from her. The dreariness of the weather seemed to affect her spirits. She took up a book presently and appeared to read. But once, in glancing up suddenly from my newspaper, I thought I caught her gaze fixed fearfully upon me. It seemed to me that she was looking furtively at me with an absolute terror. I was so much affected that I made some excuse for leaving the room, went down to my den, lit a cigar, and walked uneasily up and down, listening to the rain on the window. At ten, Margot came in to tell me she was going to bed. 
I wished her good night tenderly, but as I held her slim body a moment in my arms, I felt that she began to tremble. I let her go, and she slipped from the room with the soft, cushioned step that was habitual with her. And, strangely enough, my thoughts recurred to the day, long ago, when I first held the great white cat on my knees and felt its body shrink from my touch with a nameless horror. The uneasy movement of the woman recalled to me so strongly and so strangely the uneasy movement of the animal. I lit a second cigar. It was near midnight when it was smoked out, and I turned down the lamp and went softly up to bed. I undressed in the room adjoining my wife's, and then stole into hers. She was sleeping in the wide white bed rather uneasily, and as I leaned over her, shading the candle flame with my outspread hand, she muttered some broken words that I could not catch. I had never heard her talk in her dreams before. I lay down gently at her side and extinguished the candle. But sleep did not come to me. The dull, dead silence weighed upon instead of soothing me. My mind was terribly alive, in a ferment, and the contrast between my own excitement and the hushed peace of my environment was painful, was almost unbearable. I wished that a wind from the mountains were beating against the window panes, and the rain lashing the house in fury. The black calm around was horrible, unnatural. The drizzling rain was now so small that I could not even hear its patter when I strained my ears. Margot had ceased to mutter and lay perfectly still. How I longed to be able to read the soul hidden in her sleeping body, to unravel the mystery of the mind which I had once understood so perfectly. It is so horrible that we can never open the human envelope, take out the letter, and seize with our eyes upon its every word. Margot slept with all her secrets safeguarded, although she was unconscious, no longer watchful on the alert. She was so silent, even her quiet breathing not reaching my ear, that I felt impelled to stretch out my hand beneath the coverlet and touch hers ever so softly. I did so. Her hand was instantly and silently withdrawn. She was awake then. "'Margot,' I said, "'did I disturb you?' There was no answer. The movement, followed by the silence, affected me very disagreeably. I lit the candle and looked at her. She was lying on the extreme edge of the bed, with her blue eyes closed. Her lips were slightly parted. I could hear her steady breathing. Yet was she really sleeping? I bent lower over her, and as I did so a slight, involuntary movement akin to what we call a shudder, ran through her body. I recoiled from the bed. An impotent anger seized me. Could it be that my presence was becoming so hateful to my wife that even in sleep her body trembled when I drew near it? Or was this slumber feigned? I could not tell, 
but I felt it impossible at that moment to remain in the room. I returned to my own, dressed, and descended the stairs to the door opening on to the terrace. I felt a longing to be out in the air. The atmosphere of the house was stifling. Was it coming to this, then? Did I, a man, shrink with fantastic cowardice from a woman I loved? The latent cruelty began to stir within me, the tyrant spirit which a strong love sometimes evokes. I had been Margot's slave, almost. My affection had brought me to her feet, had kept me there. So long as she loved me, I was content to be her captive, knowing she was mine. But a change in her attitude toward me might rouse the master. In my nature there was a certain brutality, a savagery, which I had never wholly slain, although Margot had softened me wonderfully by her softness, had brought me to gentleness by her tenderness. The boy of years ago had developed toward better things, but he was not dead in me. I felt that as I walked up and down the terrace through the night in a wild meditation. If my love could not hold Margot, my strength should. I drew in a long breath of the wet night air, and I opened my shoulders as if shaking off an oppression. My passion for Margot had not yet drawn me down to weakness. It had raised me up to strength. The faint fear of her, which I had felt almost without knowing it more than once, died within me. The desire of the conqueror elevated me. There was something for me to win. My paralysis passed away, and I turned toward the house. And now a strange thing happened. I walked into the dark hall, closed the outer door, shutting out the dull murmur of the night, and felt in my pocket for my matchbox. It was not there. I must inadvertently have laid it down in my dressing-room and left it. I searched about in the darkness on the hall table, but could find no light. There was nothing for it, then, but to feel my way upstairs as best I could. I started, keeping my hand against the wall to guide me. I gained the top of the stairs and began to traverse the landing, still with my hand upon the wall. To reach my dressing-room I had to pass the apartment which had been my grandmother's sitting-room. When I reached it, instead of sliding along a closed door, as I had anticipated, my hand dropped into vacancy. The door was wide open. It had been shut, like all the other doors in the house, when I had descended the stairs, shut and locked, as it always was at night-time. Why was it open now? I paused in the darkness, and then an impulse seized me to walk forward into the room. I advanced a step, but as I did so, a horrible low cry broke upon my ears out of the darkness. It came from immediately in front of me and sounded like an expression of the most abject fear. My feet rooted themselves to the ground. "'Who's there?' I asked. There came no answer. I listened for a moment, but did not hear the minutest sound. 
the desire for light was overpowering. I generally did my writing in this room, and knew the exact whereabouts of everything in it. I knew that on the writing table there was a silver box containing wax matches. It lay on the left of my desk. I moved another step forward. There was the sound of a slight rustle, as if someone shrank back as I advanced. I laid my hand quickly on the box, opened it, and struck a light. The room was vaguely illuminated. I saw something white at the far end, against the wall. I put the match to a candle. The white thing was Margot. She was in her dressing gown, and was crouched up in an angle of the wall as far from where I stood as possible. Her blue eyes were wide open and fixed upon me with an expression of such intense and hideous fear in them that I almost cried out. "'Margot, what is the matter?' I said. "'Are you ill?' She made no reply. Her face terrified me. "'What is it, Margot?' I cried in a loud, almost harsh voice, determined to rouse her from this horrible, unnatural silence. "'What are you doing here?' I moved towards her. I stretched out my hands and seized her. As I did so, a sort of sob burst from her. Her hands were cold and trembling. "'What is it? What has frightened you?' I reiterated. At last she spoke in a low voice. "'You... you looked so strange, so... so cruel as you came in,' she said. "'Strange? Cruel? But you could not see me. It was dark,' I answered. "'Dark?' she said. "'Yes, until I lit the candle. And you cried out when I was only in the doorway.' You could not see me there. Why not? What has that got to do with it? She murmured, still trembling violently. You can see me in the dark? Of course, she said. I don't understand what you mean. Of course I can see you when you are there before my eyes. But, I began, and then her obvious and complete surprise at my questions stopped them. I still held her hands in mine, and their extreme coldness roused me to the remembrance that she was unclothed. "'You will be ill if you stay here,' I said. "'Come back to your room.' She said nothing, and I led her back, waited while she got into bed, and then, placing the candle on the dressing-table, sat down in a chair by her side. The strong determination to take prompt action, to come to an explanation, to end these dreary mysteries of mind and conduct was still upon me. I did not think of the strange hour. I did not care that the night was gliding on towards dawn. I was self-absorbed. I was beyond ordinary considerations. Yet I did not speak immediately. I was trying to be quite calm, trying to think of the best line for me to take. So much might depend upon our mere words now. At length I said, laying my hand upon hers, which was outside the coverlet, "'Margot, 
What were you doing in that room at such a strange hour? Why were you there? She hesitated, obviously. Then she answered, not looking at me. I missed you. I thought you might be there, writing. But you were in the dark. I thought you would have a light. I knew by her manner that she was not telling me the truth, but I went on quietly. If you expected me, why did you cry out when I came to the door? She tried to draw her hand away, but I held it fast, closing my fingers upon it with even brutal strength. Why did you cry out? You, you looked so strange, so cruel. So cruel? Yes, you frightened me. You frightened me horribly. She began suddenly to sob, like one completely overstrained. I lifted her up in bed, put my arms around her, and made her lean against me. I was strangely moved. "'I frightened you. How can that be?' I said, trying to control a passion of mingled love and anger that filled my breast. "'You know that I love you. You must know that. In all our short married life have I ever been even momentarily unkind to you? Let us be frank with one another. Our lives have changed lately. One of us has altered. You cannot say that it is I. She only continued to sob bitterly in my arms. I held her closer. Let us be frank with one another, I went on. For God's sake, let us have no barriers between us. Margot, look into my eyes and tell me, are you growing tired of me? She turned her head away, but I spoke more sternly. You shall be truthful. I will have no more subterfuge. Look me in the face. You did love me once? Yes, yes, she whispered in a choked voice. What have I done, then, to alienate you? Have I ever hurt you, ever shown a lack of sympathy, ever neglected you? Never, never. Yet you have changed to me since, since... I paused a moment, trying to recall when I had first noticed her altered demeanor. She interrupted me. It has all come upon me in this house, she sobbed. Oh, what is it? What does it all mean? If I could understand a little, only a little, it would not be so bad. But this nightmare, this thing that seems such a madness of the intellect... Her voice broke and ceased. Her tears burst forth afresh. She mingled fear, passion, and a sort of strange latent irritation I had never seen before. It is a madness, indeed, I said, and a sense almost of outrage made my voice hard and cold. I have not deserved such treatment at your hands. I will not yield to it, she said, with a sort of desperation, suddenly throwing her arms around me. I will not, I will not. I was strangely puzzled. I was torn with conflicting feelings. 
love and anger grappled at my heart. But I only held her and did not speak until she grew obviously calmer. The paroxysm seemed passing away. Then I said, I cannot understand. Nor I, she answered, with a directness that had been foreign to her of late, but that was part and parcel of her real beautiful nature. I cannot understand. I only know there is a change in me, or in you to me, and that I cannot help it, or that I have not been able to help it. Sometimes I feel, do not be angry, I will try to tell you, a physical fear of you, of your touch, of your clasp, a fear such as an animal might feel towards the master who has beaten it. I tremble then at your approach. When you are near me I feel cold, oh, so cold, and, and anxious, perhaps I ought to say apprehensive. Oh, I am hurting you. I suppose I must have winced at her words, and she is quick to observe. Go on, I said. Do not spare me. Tell me everything. It is madness indeed, but we may kill it when we both know it. Oh, if we could, she cried, with a poignancy which was heartbreaking to hear. If we could. Do you doubt our ability? I said, trying to be patient and calm. You are unreasoning, like all women. Be sensible for a moment. You do me a wrong in cherishing these feelings. I have the capacity for cruelty in me. I may have been, I have been, cruel in the past, but never to you. You have no right to treat me as you have done lately. If you examine your feelings and compare them with facts, you will see their absurdity. But, she interposed with a woman's fatal quickness, that will not do away with their reality. It must. Look into their faces until they fade like ghosts seen only between light and darkness. They are founded upon nothing. They are bred without father or mother. They are hysterical. They are wicked. Think a little of me. You are not going to be conquered by a chimera to allow a phantom created by your imagination to ruin the happiness that has been so beautiful. You will not do that. You dare not. She only answered, If I can help it. A passionate anger seized me a fury at my impotence against this child. I pushed her almost roughly from my arms. "'And I have married this woman!' I cried bitterly. I got up. Margot had ceased crying now, and her face was very white and calm. It looked rigid in the faint candlelight that shone across the bed. "'Do not be angry,' she said. We are controlled by something inside of us. There are powers in us that we cannot fight against. There is nothing we cannot fight against, I said passionately. The doctrine of predestination is the devil's own doctrine. It is the doctrine set up by the sinner to excuse his sin. 
It is the coward's doctrine. Understand me, Margot, I love you, but I am not a weak fool. There must be an end of this folly. Perhaps you are playing with me, acting like a girl, testing me. Let us have no more of it. She said, I only do what I must. Her tone turned me cold. Her set face frightened me and angered me, for there was a curious obstinacy in it. I left the room abruptly and did not return. That night I had no sleep. I am not a coward, but I find that I am inclined to fear that which fears me. I dread an animal that always avoids me silently more than an animal that actually attacks me. The thing that runs from me makes me shiver. The thing that creeps away when I come near wakes my uneasiness. At this time there rose up in me a strange feeling towards Margot. The white, fair child I had married was at moments, only at moments, horrible to me. I felt disposed to shun her. Something within cried out against her. Long ago, at the instant of our introduction, an unreasoning sensation that could only be called dread had laid hold upon me. That dread returned from the night of our explanation, returned deepened and added to. It prompted me to a suggestion which I had no sooner made than I regretted it. On the morning following, I told Margot that in future we had better occupy separate rooms. She assented quietly, but I thought a furtive expression of relief stole for a moment into her face. I was deeply angered with her and with myself, yet, now that I knew beyond question my wife's physical terror of me, I was half afraid of her. I felt as if I could not bring myself to lie long hours by her side in the darkness, by the side of a woman who was shrinking from me, who was watching me when I could not see her. The idea made my very flesh creep. Yet I hated myself for this shrinking of the body, and sometimes hated her for rousing it. A hideous struggle was going on within me a struggle between love and impotent anger and despair, between the lover and the master. For I am one of the old-fashioned men who think that a husband ought to be master of his wife as well as of his house. How could I be master of a woman I secretly feared? My knowledge of myself spurred me through acute irritation almost to the verge of madness. All calm was gone. I was alternately gentle to my wife and almost ferocious towards her, ready to fall at her feet and worship her, or to seize her and treat her with physical violence. I only restrained myself by an effort. My variations of manner did not seem to affect her. Indeed, it sometimes struck me that she feared me more when I was kind to her than when I was harsh and I knew, by a thousand furtive indications, that her horror of me was deepening day by day. I believe she could hardly bring herself to be in a room alone with me, especially after nightfall. 
One evening, when we were dining, the butler, after placing dessert upon the table, moved to leave us. She turned white, and, as he reached the door, half rose, and called him back in a sharp voice. "'Simmons,' she said. "'Yes, ma'am?' "'You are going?' The fellow looked surprised. "'Can I get you anything, ma'am?' She glanced at me with an indescribable uneasiness. Then she leaned back in her chair with an effort and pressed her lips together. "'No,' she said. As the man went out and shut the door, she looked at me again from under her eyelids, and finally her eyes traveled from me to a small, thin-bladed knife used for cutting oranges that lay near her plate and fixed themselves on it. She put out her hand stealthily, drew it towards her, and kept her hand over it on the table. I took an orange from a dish in front of me. "'Margot,' I said, "'will you pass me that fruit knife?' She obviously hesitated. "'Give me that knife,' I repeated roughly, stretching out my hand. She lifted her hand, left the knife upon the table, and at the same time, springing up, glided softly out of the room and closed the door behind her. That evening I spent alone in the smoking-room, and, for the first time, she did not come to bid me good night. I sat smoking my cigar in a tumult of furious despair and love. The situation was becoming intolerable. It could not be endured. I longed for a crisis, even for a violent one. I could have cried aloud that night for a veritable tragedy. There were moments when I would almost have killed the child who mysteriously eluded and defied me. I could have wreaked a cruel vengeance upon the body for the sin of the mind. I was terribly, mortally distressed. After a long and painful self-communion, I resolved to make another wild effort to set things right before it was too late. And when the clock chimed the half-hour after ten, I went upstairs softly to her bedroom and turned the handle of the door, meaning to enter, to catch Margot in my arms, tell her how deep my love for her was, how she injured me by her base fears, and how she was driving me back from the gentleness she had given me to the cruelty, to the brutality of my first nature. The door resisted me. It was locked. I paused a moment, and then tapped gently. I heard a sudden rustle within, as if someone hurried across the floor away from the door, and then Margot's voice cried sharply, "'Who's that? Who is there?' "'Margot, it is I. I wish to speak to you, to say good-night.' "'Good-night,' she said. "'But let me in for a moment.' There was a silence. It seemed to me a long one. Then she answered, "'Not now, dear. I—I I am so tired.' "'Open the door for a moment.' "'I am very tired. Good-night.' The cold, level tone of her voice, 
for the anxiety had left it after that first sudden cry, roused me to a sudden fury of action. I seized the handle of the door and pressed with all my strength. Physically, I am a very powerful man. My anger and despair gave me a giant's might. I burst the lock and sprang into the room. My impulse was to seize Margot in my arms and crush her to death, it might be, in an embrace she could not struggle against. The blood coursed like molten fire through my veins. The lust of love, the lust of murder even, perhaps, was upon me. I sprang impetuously into the room. No candles were alight in it. The blinds were up, and the chill moonbeams filtered through the small lattice panes. By the farthest window, in the yellowish radiance, was huddled a white thing. A sudden cold took hold upon me. All the warmth in me froze up. I stopped where I was and held my breath. That white thing, seen thus uncertainly, had no resemblance to humanity. It was animal, wholly. I could have believed for the moment that a white cat crouched from me there by the curtain, waiting to spring. What a strange illusion that was! I tried to laugh at it afterwards, but at the moment horror stole through me, horror and almost awe. All desire of violence left me. Heat was dead. I felt cold as stone. I could not even speak a word. Suddenly the white thing moved. The curtain was drawn sharply. The moonlight was blotted out. The room was plunged in darkness, a darkness in which that thing could see. I turned and stole out of the room. I could have fled, driven by the nameless fear that was upon me. Only when the morning dawned did the man in me awake, and I cursed myself for my cowardice. The following evening we were asked to dine out with some neighbors, who lived a few miles off in a wonderful old Norman castle near the sea. During the day neither of us had made the slightest allusion to the incidents of the previous night. We both felt it a relief to go into society, I think. The friends to whom we went, Lord and Lady Melchester, had a large party staying with them, and we were, I believe, the only outsiders who lived in the neighborhood. One of their guests was Professor Black, whose name I have already mentioned, a little, dry, thin, acrid man, with thick black hair, innocent of the comb, and pursed straight lips. I had met him two or three times in London, and as he had only just arrived at the castle, and scarcely knew his fellow visitors there, he brought his wine over to me when the ladies left the dining-room, and entered into conversation. At the moment I was glad, but before we followed the women I would have given a year, I might say years, of my life not to have spoken to him, not to have heard him speak that night. How did we drift into that fatal conversation? I hardly remember. We talked first of the neighborhood, then swayed away to books, then to people. 
Yes, that was how it came about. The professor was speaking of a man whom we both knew in town, a curiously effeminate man, whose every thought and feeling seemed that of a woman. I said I disliked him, and condemned him for his woman's demeanor, his woman's mind, but the professor thereupon joined issue with me. "'Pity the fellow if you like,' he uttered, in his rather strident voice. "'But as to condemning him, I would as soon condemn a tadpole for not being a full-grown frog. His soul is beyond his power to manage, or even to coerce. You may depend upon it.' Having sipped his port, he drew a little nearer to me and slightly dropped his voice. "'There would be less censure of individuals in this world,' he said, "'if people were only a little more thoughtful. These souls are like letters, and sometimes they are sealed up in the wrong envelope. For instance, a man's soul may be put into a woman's body, or vice versa. It has been so in D's case. A mistake has been made.' "'By providence?' I interrupted, with perhaps just a soupçon of sarcasm in my voice. The professor smiled. "'Suppose we imitate Thomas Hardy, and say by the president of the immortals, who makes sport with more humans than Tess,' he answered. "'Mistakes may be deliberate, just as the reverse may be accidental.' Even a mighty power may condescend sometimes to a very practical joke. To a thinker the world is full of apple-pie beds, and cold wet sponges fall on us from at least half the doors we push open. The soul-jugglaries of the before-mentioned president are very curious, but people will not realize that soul-transference from body to body is as much a plain fact as the daily rising of the sun on one half of the world and its nightly setting on the other. Do you mean that souls pass on into the world again on the death of the particular body in which they have been for the moment confined? I asked. Precisely. I have no doubt of it. Sometimes a woman's soul goes into a man's body. Then the man acts woman and people cry against him for effeminacy. The soul colors the body with actions. The body does not color the soul, or not in the same degree. But we are not irresponsible. We can command ourselves. The professor smiled dryly. You think so? he said. I sometimes doubt it. And I doubt your theory of soul transference. That shows me, pardon the apparent impertinence, that you have never really examined the soul question with any close attention. Do you suppose that D really likes being so noticeably different from other men? Depend upon it. He has noticed in himself what we have noticed in him. Depend upon it, he has tried to be ordinary, and found it impossible. His soul manages him as a strong nature manages a weak one, and his soul is a female, not a male. For souls have sexes, otherwise what would be the sense of talking about wedded souls? 
I have no doubt whatever of the truth of reincarnation on earth. Souls go on and on following out their object of development. You believe that every soul is reincarnated? A certain number of times. That even in the animal world the soul of one animal passes into the body of another? Wait a minute. Now we are coming to something that tends to prove my theory true. Animals have souls, as you imply. Who can know them intimately and doubt it for an instant? Souls as immortal, or as mortal, as ours. And their souls, too, pass on. Into other animals? Possibly. And eventually, in the process of development, into human beings. I laughed, perhaps a little rudely. My dear professor, I thought that old notion was quite exploded in these modern scientific days. I found my beliefs upon my own minute observations, he said rather frigidly. I noticed certain animals masquerading, to some extent, as human beings, and I draw my own conclusions. If they happen to fit in at all with the conclusions of Pythagoras, or anyone else for that matter, well and good. If not, I am not much concerned. Surely you have noticed the animal, and not merely the animal, but definite animals, reproduced in man? There are men whose whole demeanor suggests the monkey. I have met women who, in manner, appearance, and even character, were intensely like cats. I uttered a slight exclamation which did not interrupt him. Now I have made a minute study of cats. Of all animals they interest me the most. They have less apparent intensity, less uttered passion, than dogs, but in my opinion more character. Their subtlety is extraordinary, their sensitiveness wonderful. Will you understand me when I say that all dogs are men, all cats women? That remark expresses the difference between them. He paused a moment. Go on, go on, I said, leaning forward, with my eyes fixed upon his keen puckered face. He seemed pleased with my suddenly aroused interest. Cats are as subtle and as difficult to understand as the most complex woman, and almost as full of intuitions. If they have been well treated, there is often a certain gracious, condescending suavity in their demeanor at first, even towards a total stranger. But if that stranger is ill-disposed toward them, they seem instinctively to read his soul, and they are in arms directly. Yet they dissemble their fears in a cold indifference and reserve. They do not take action, they merely abstain from action. They withdraw the soul that has peeped out, as they can withdraw their claws into the pads upon their feet. They do not show fight as a dog might, they do not become aggressive, nor do they whine and put their tails between their legs. They are simply on guard, watchful, mistrustful. Is not all this woman? Possibly, 
I answered, with a painful effort to assume indifference. "'A woman intuitively knows who is her friend and who is her enemy, so long, at least, as her heart is not engaged. Then she runs wild, I allow. A woman—' But I need not pursue the parallel. Besides, perhaps it is scarcely to the point, for my object is not to bolster up an absurd contention that all women have the souls of cats. No, but I have met women so strangely like cats that their souls have, as I said before, souls do, colored their bodies in actions. They have had the very look of cats in their faces. They have moved like them. Their demeanor has been patently and strongly feline. Now, I see nothing ridiculous in the assumption that such women's bodies may contain souls, in process of development, of course, that formerly were merely cat souls, but that are now gaining humanity gradually, are working their way upwards in the scale. After all, we are not so much above the animals, and in our lapses we often become merely animals. The soul retrogrades for the moment. He paused again and looked at me. I was biting my lips, and my glass of wine was untouched. He took my agitation as a compliment, I suppose, for he smiled and said, "'Are you in process of conversion?' I half shook my head. Then I said with an effort, "'It is a curious and interesting idea, of course, but there is much to explain.' Now, I should like to ask you this. Do you, do you believe that a soul, if it passes on as you think, carries its memory with it, its memory of former loves and, and hates? Say that a cat's soul goes to a woman's body, and that the cat has been, has been, well, tortured, possibly killed, by someone say some man, long ago, would the woman meeting that man remember and shrink from him? That is a very interesting and curious problem, and one which I do not pretend to have solved. I can, therefore, only suggest what might be, what seems to me reasonable. I do not believe that the woman would remember positively but I think she might have an intuition about the man. Our intuitions are, perhaps, sometimes only the fragmentary recollections of our souls, of what formerly happened to them when in other bodies. Why, otherwise, should we sometimes conceive an ardent dislike of some stranger, charming to all appearance, of whom we know no evil, whom we have never heard of nor met before? Intuitions, so-called, are often only tattered memories. And these intuitions might, I should fancy, be strengthened, given body, robustness, by association, of place, for example. Cats become intensely attached to localities, to certain spots, a particular house or garden, a particular fireside, apart from the people who may be there. 
Possibly, if the man and the woman of whom you speak could be brought together in the very place where the torture and death occurred, the dislike of the woman might deepen into positive hatred. It would, however, be always unreasoning hatred, I think, and even quite unaccountable to herself. Still— But here Lord Melchester rose from the table. The conversations broke into fragments. I felt that I was pale to the lips. We passed into the drawing-room. The ladies were grouped together at one end, near the piano. Margot was among them. She was, as usual, dressed in white, and round the bottom of her gown there was an edging of snow-white fur. As we came in, she moved away from the piano to a sofa at some distance and sank down upon it. Professor Black, who had entered the room at my side, seized my arm gently. "'Now that lady,' he whispered in my ear, "'I do not know who she may be, but she is intensely cat-like. I observed it before dinner. Did you notice the way she moved just then, the soft, yielding, easy manner in which she sat down, falling at once, quite naturally, into a charming pose? And her china-blue eyes are—' "'She is my wife, Professor,' I interrupted harshly. He looked decidedly taken aback. "'I beg your pardon. I had no idea. I did not enter the drawing-room to-night till after you arrived. I believed that lady was one of my fellow guests in the house. Let me congratulate you. She is very beautiful.' And then he mingled rather hastily in the group near the piano. "'The man is mad, I know, mad as a hatter on one point, like so many clever men.' He sees the animal in every person he meets just because his preposterous theory inclines him to do so. Having given in his adherence to it, he sees facts not as they are, but as he wishes them to be. But he shall not carry me with him. The theory is his, not mine. It does not hold water for a moment. I can laugh at it now. But that night, I confess, it did seize me for the time being. I could scarcely talk. I found myself watching Margot with a terrible intentness. And I found myself agreeing with the professor to an extent that made me marvel at my own previous blindness. There was something strangely feline about the girl I had married, the soft white girl who was becoming terrible to me, dear though she still was and must always be her movements had the subtle instinctive and certain grace of a cat's her cushioned step which had often struck me before was like the step of a cat and those china blue eyes a sudden cold seemed to pass over me as i understood why i had recognized them when i first met margot they were the eyes of the animal I had tortured, the animal I had killed. Yes, but that proved nothing, absolutely nothing. Many people had the eyes of animals, the soft eyes of dogs, the furtive, cruel eyes of tigers. I had known such people. 
I had even once had an affair with a girl who was always called the shot partridge because her eyes were supposed to be like those of a dying bird. I tried to laugh to myself as I remembered this, but I felt cold and my senses seemed benumbed as by a great horror. I sat like a stone with my eyes fixed upon Margot, trying painfully to read into her all the words of Professor Black had suggested to me, trying, but with the wish not to succeed. I was roused by Lady Melchester, who came toward me asking me to do something. I forget now what. I forced myself to be cheerful, to join in the conversation, to seem at my ease, but I felt like one oppressed with nightmare, and I could scarcely withdraw my eyes from the sofa where my wife was sitting. She was talking now to Professor Black, who had just been introduced to her, and I felt a sudden fury in my heart as I thought that he was perhaps dryly, coldly, studying her, little knowing what issues, far-reaching it might be in their consequences, hung upon the truth or falsehood of his strange theory. They were talking earnestly, and presently it occurred to me that he might be imbuing Margot with his pernicious doctrines, that he might be giving her a knowledge of her own soul which now she lacked. The idea was insupportable. I broke off abruptly the conversation in which I was taking part, and hurried over to them with an impulse which must have astonished anyone who took note of me. I sat down on a chair, drew it forward almost violently, and thrust myself in between them. "'What are you two talking about?' I said roughly, with a suspicious glance at Margot. The professor looked at me in surprise. "'I was instructing your wife in some of the mysteries of salmon fishing,' he said. "'She tells me you have a salmon river running through your grounds.' I laughed uneasily. "'So you are a fisherman as well as a romantic theorist,' I said rather rudely. "'How I wish I were as versatile. "'Come, Margot, we must be going now. "'The carriage ought to be here.' "'She rose quietly and bade the professor good night, "'but as she glanced up at me in rising, "'I fancied I caught a new expression in her eyes, "'a ray of determination, of set purpose, "'mingled with the gloomy fire of their despair.' As soon as we were in the carriage I spoke, with a strained effort at ease and the haphazard tone which should mask furtive cross-examination. "'Professor Black is an interesting man,' I said. "'Do you think so?' she answered from her dark corner. "'Surely. His intellect is really alive. Yet with all his scientific knowledge and his power of eliciting facts and elucidating them, he is but a feather-headed man. I paused, but she made no answer. Do you not think so? How can I tell? she replied. We only talked about fishing. He managed to make that topic a pleasant one. Her tone was frank. I felt relieved. "'He is exceedingly clever,' I said, heartily, and we relapsed into silence. 
When we reached home and Margot had removed her cloak, she came up to me and laid her hand on my arm. So unaccustomed was her touch now that I was startled. She was looking at me with a curious, steady smile, an unwavering smile that chilled instead of warming me. "'Ronald,' she said, "'there has been a breach between us. I have been the cause of it. I should like to—to to heal it. Do you still love me as you did?' I did not answer immediately. I could not. Her voice, schooled as it was, seemed somehow at issue with the word she uttered. There was a desperate, hard note in it that accorded with that enigmatic smile of the mouth. It roused a cold suspicion within me that I was close to a masked battery. I shrank physically from the touch of her hand. She waited with her eyes upon me. Our faces were lit tremblingly by the flames of the two candles we held. At last I found a voice. "'Can you doubt it?' I asked. She drew a step nearer. "'Then let us resume our old relations,' she said. "'Our old relations?' "'Yes.' I shuddered as if a phantom stole by me. I was seized with horror. "'Tonight? It is not possible.' "'Why?' she said, still with that steady smile of the mouth. "'Because... because... I don't know. I... "'Tomorrow it shall be as of old, Margot. Tomorrow. I promise you.' "'Very well. Kiss me, dear.' I forced myself to touch her lips with mine. Which mouth was the colder? Then, with that soft, stealthy step of hers, she vanished towards her room. I heard the door close gently. I listened. The key was not turned in the lock. This sudden abandonment by Margot of the fantastic precautions I had almost become accustomed to filled me with a nameless dread. That night I fastened my door for the first time. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline